Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleague, Chase Cannon. We are both attorneys for the Benefits Compliance Department of NFP, and we bring to you uh, different, we like to unpack different information that relates to things that impact employee benefits and the employers that offer the employee benefits. Today, we're going to discuss FAQ guidance that was published recently by the IRS that relates to the ARPA COBRA premium subsidies and tax credits, and certainly something we've been receiving a lot of questions on. So Chase, give us an intro on uh, this topic. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. And hopefully this all sounds familiar to our audience and to employers, uh, because we have been kind of dealing with it over the last couple of months. But at the 10,000 foot view, ARPA, that's the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, that provides for a 100% COBRA premium subsidy sometimes referred to as premium assistance now. We're getting that new term from the IRS. So COBRA premium subsidy or premium assistance, those are really the same thing. But that applies for anyone who experienced a reduction in hours or an involuntary termination and who is still in their COBRA or state continuation maximum coverage period. And then for those who experienced those events going forward until the end of September at least. So the subsidy runs from April 1st of this year through September 30th of this year. Employers are supposed to send notices to impacted individuals. Those are called assistance eligible individuals or AEIs. So that's a new acronym we've been getting used to. And that's supposed to be done by Memorial Day. So next week, uh, really this weekend, and we'll talk a little bit more about those notices, but um, probably a good idea to get them out before that because that's a holiday, obviously. May 31st, that's the deadline. But basically, AEIs get free COBRA or state continuation coverage for that April to September timeframe. And then the employer can claim a related tax credit to be made whole by the IRS, really by the taxpayers, but through the IRS, that's done through the quarterly employment tax filing. Uh, The IRS, though, as you said last week, provided 86 new FAQs, 86. Wow. About 41 pages. (laughs) So some serious effort there. Way to go, IRS. Our only complaint is that we could have used it about two months ago. Right. But we'll take it however we can get it, I guess. Right. And and we're not going to go through all 86 questions today, but we will be highlighting those that are most important to you today. But you, you alluded to the employer involvement. And before we dig into these FAQs, just give us a lay of the land of what employers should be doing right now. Yeah, so um, just to go through and really high level, what should employers be doing? And I, I got to give some credit to my colleagues, Beth Allen, uh, Patrick Myers, and Diane Cross. They, they put on a webinar yesterday, and we can provide anyone that needs the link to that to go listen to that. It's a lot more in depth than what we're getting to today, but they outlined kind of this six step process. The first step would be to ID who is responsible for providing the premium relief to participants and claiming that tax credit. Um, The second step is to determine which individuals are AEIs. Again, those are those that are eligible for the subsidy. Step three would be to send the required notices to those AEIs. Step four is to work with the carrier or the ASO 
TPA, if you're in the self-insured context, on the premium payment process. Step five would be a required end of subsidy notice that needs to be sent when that arises later. And then step six is claiming the tax credit. So we're going to go a little bit more into the, the weeds on that. But that's so, right. Let's start with step one. And, and you, it's IDing who is responsible for providing the premium relief to the participants and claiming the tax credits. We also refer to it as the premium payee. Yeah, so that's kind of a new term from the IRS in the FAQs is this premium payee. Uh, remember that the, uh, the, in, the assistance eligible individual or AEI, uh, they cannot be charged for COBRA or continuation coverage during that April to September timeframe, but somebody has to pay for it, right? So the premium payee is that term, and that's the one that's responsible for making the subs subsidized COBRA premium payment. And in almost all situations for our audience, it'll be the employer. Uh, but to recap, it's the employer for self-insured plans. It's the employer for fully insured plans. If the plan is only subject to state continuation, then that's when the carrier would be responsible. And then for multi-employer plans, it's the plan itself. For MIWAs and PEOs, we do get questions on those. It's a little bit more nuanced, uh, but it's likely the plan itself. And then, uh, but for again, for almost all on this call, it's the employer as the responsible party, the premium payee. Uh, once, one nuance to address there, uh, since some employers may have dropped below the COBRA threshold uh, over the last year, we've seen shrinkage, right? They've gone below 20 employees. The IRS addressed that and basically said if an employer is no longer subject to federal COBRA due to a reduction in employees, they are still required to provide the premium assistance uh, who, uh, to AEIs who may have experienced their triggering event while the employer was subject to federal COBRA. So you really look at whether the employer was subject to COBRA at some point in that in the last 18 months. If they were in 2020, for example, that's when most of these reductions occurred, but they're now smaller, they still have to provide that subsidy. So they're, they're the responsible party. So hopefully most employers are aware of this by now. And of course we can answer questions through our brokers if there are any, but, but let's move ahead and go on to step two who is an AEI? Yeah, so step two is identifying AEIs. Three things to be in an AEI. First, the individual has to have experienced a reduction in hours, and that can be voluntary or involuntary, or an involuntary termination. So look at the event um, that triggered COBRA. Second, the individual cannot be eligible for other group coverage or Medicare. That's disqualifying. Uh, and then the third thing is that they still must be in their COBRA maximum coverage period, or if it's someone who's newly eligible going forward, um, experienced a reduction or an involuntary termination. So looking at that COBRA maximum coverage period, who could still be in that? That's where we get this 18-month look-back um, period going back to November of, or sorry, October of 2019. Um, but we do know, and we get this question a lot on state continuation, because some states go back further, right? You have 36 months in, in New York, a uh, handful of states like that. You don't have to go further back. You just have to look at who's enrolled in state continuation as of April 1st, 2021. There's no new election right for those that are uh, experienced a state continuation event. 
Okay, so let's talk about what, what constitutes a reduction hour or a, an involuntary termination, because that seems to be one of the biggest issues that we hear. How did the IRS clarify these, these uh, events? Yeah, so good point. There's some good confirmations and clarifications in the IRS FAQs. When it comes to a reduction in hours, the notice confirms that furloughs and strikes are reductions in hours that would make an AEI eligible for COBRA premium assistance if they lose coverage as a result of those. Also, if the employer reduces an employee's hours or changes the geographic location of the employee's job and the employee quits as a result of that, that is considered an involuntary termination. And that's because the employee is quitting for a good reason, right? They're kind of being forced into it. When it comes to involuntary termination specifically, it's, it's, uh, it is an involuntary termination if an employee is given the opportunity to quit or retire instead of being fired. So those are you know, situations where it's, uh, we'll, we'll allow you to voluntarily resign, but the writing is on the wall that they are going to get fired if they don't, uh, that would be involuntary termination. It does not include an employee quitting due to concerns about workplace safety though. That was mm. an interesting one. Mm -hmm. you know, if an employee is concerned about coming back because of COVID or some other workplace safety issue, um, that's not enough to be an involuntary termination. Also, quitting due to lack of childcare is not an involuntary termination, but it could be a reduction of hours if the person is not fired and loses coverage. If they kind of remain employed but have a reduction in hours there. On leaves of absence specifically, the FAQs say that a disability will only give rise to an involuntary termination if the employer terminates the person while there was a reasonable expectation that they would return to work. Um, so there could be a reduction in hours in that situation where the disabled individual has not been terminated but loses coverage, sort of confirming what we sort of already knew on leaves of absence there. What, what about employment contracts? That seems to be kind of a sticky area. Yes, very sticky. <laughs> Lots of questions around this. The IRS uh, did not totally clarify this, but basically they said that a decision not to renew an employee's contract, which they say includes staffing agency contracts, that would be an involuntary termination if, there's always an if, if the employee is willing and able to continue the employment relationship uh, but then they went on to say that if the parties always understood that the contract expired at a certain time, it would not be an involuntary termination. So this is a little bit confusing. The IRS mm -hmm. didn't go any further than that. So it feels a little unanswered. Uh, we think what they're saying is they're referencing the distinction between an ongoing contract versus a one-time project. Mm -hmm. A quick example, uh, teachers are often offered contracts that renew every year. Although the length of the contract is generally 12 months or potentially from the fall to the end of the spring, like the school year, an employer that doesn't renew the teacher's contract likely involuntarily terminated the teacher. That's because the teacher was willing and able to continue work and the, you know, the contract uh, was renewed for years. But let's look at an IT consultant that might be hired to transition an employer from one server to another. The understanding is that the IT consultant would only work long enough to complete the project. After it's done, the employer has no more work for the IT consultant. Right. That is likely not an involuntary termination. So hopefully those two examples kind of help explain 
ultimately it's kind of a facts circumstances analysis that just gets really tricky and, and maybe outside counsel will have to help on those. Yes, but I like your identification of project-based versus a renewable contract that's ongoing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we already know that someone eligible for other group coverage or Medicare is ineligible for the subsidy. Was there any new guidance on that? Yes, so this one is interesting. Uh, the guidance says COBRA premium assistance is available to a potential AEI until that individual is permitted to enroll in coverage under any other group health plan, including during a waiting period for any other plan. So that was one question, if you're eligible, but maybe you're waiting to get into the the other employer plan, you can still be eligible for the COBRA subsidy. The other one has to do with maybe somebody who was eligible for a, a spouse's plan or for their own plan through a different employer, but maybe they waived coverage previously uh, so a quick example there, let's say the individual is involuntarily terminated in October of last year, 2020. In November 2020, they had the chance to enroll in their spouse's plan, but they didn't enroll. Uh, the open enrollment for the spouse's plan ended in December of 2020, and the individual has not had another chance to enroll in that spouse's group health plan at any time on or after April 1st of 2021. According to the new guidance, the result here is that the individual is not considered eligible for coverage under the spouse's plan until the next open enrollment. So that means the individual can receive COBRA premium assistance as an AEI beginning April 1st. Uh, But if the spouse's plan has an open enrollment opportunity sometime between April and September, the individual would cease being eligible for COBRA premium assistance. Yeah, that's a good example. And it really shows how tricky really it can get as you try to think through some of the facts and circumstances and, and potential cases. Yeah. And that was a, it was a question we were hearing a lot, like, how is that really fair if, if somebody had the chance previously, but waived it and now they're kind of locked out. And we thought previously that they wouldn't be eligible for the subsidy because they were eligible for other coverage. And so the IRS has kind of thrown us a bone here, at least to those individuals saying, Hey, we'll still let you get the COBRA assistance. So what, and what about Medicare? Cause it, it feels like the same kind of situation with the indiv- individual could be locked out of Medicare until a later time in the year. Yeah. Unfortunately, the same logic doesn't seem to apply, at least according to the IRS, if someone is eligible for Medicare, uh, then they're really out when it comes to the subsidy. Um, so there's not that same example in the Medicare context as the one that we just walked through for other group health coverage. So regardless of whether an individual missed an opportunity to enroll in Medicare, if the individual is eligible for Medicare, they're not going to be eligible for the ARPA subsidies. So, okay, let's jump to the tax credit process because that's obviously of interest to our employers. Can you, uh, what clarification did they provide? Yes, these are very important, right? Because if the employer is having to front the money, they wanna know how to get reimbursed through the tax credit. First, we already knew this, but the tax credit is equal to 102% of the cost of coverage. Uh, That includes the 2% admin fee that is normally allowed. So we always say that 100% of the COBRA premium rate plus the 2% admin fee, but it doesn't appear to include costs associated with complying with ARPA, such as sending these ARPA uh, compliance uh, notices or the the model notices. The premium also doesn't apply to non-qualified beneficiaries. So if the employee is covering a domestic partner, the subsidy would apply only to the portion of the premium that uh, relates to a qualified COBRA 
beneficiary. There's some good examples in the FAQs that we won't go into, but if you're curious about that, how to calculate it, um, where there's coverage of a non-COBRA uh, qualified beneficiary. Importantly, the credit is decreased by amounts that the employer would have subsidized absent the ARPA COBRA provision. Okay, what do you mean by that? I mean, are employers usually subsidizing COBRA? Yeah, so not normally, but occasionally, and sometimes this comes up with severance arrangements. But let's start with the ba a basic example. If the applicable COBRA premium is $1,000 a month and the employer normally requires uh, a COBRA beneficiary to pay $500 per month, and then the employer subsidizes the other 500, then the ARPA tax credit, according to the IRS FAQs, would, would be $500, not 1,000. So they're not giving a break to the employer, only to the employee or the, the um, past employee. Right. So the employer could just change their policies so that they're no longer subsidizing the 500. That could be one way to attack that, but it, it doesn't seem to be prohibited to do that. But the IRS doesn't really expound on that. It just says the tax credit is decreased by amounts that the employer would have otherwise subsidized if ARPA wasn't around. I think it might be hard to justify a temporary reduction in an otherwise regular, uh, you know, regularly provided scheduled subsidy that the employer has been giving for a long time. Uh, that seems a little sneaky to me. So proceed with caution there. Yeah, uh, the IRS doesn't like sneakiness. <laughs> generally, no. <laughs> uh, but the other example is severance. And we've had a lot of questions come in on severance agreements. So let's look at an example there. Again, let's say the applicable COBRA premium is 1000 a month. Uh, this time, though, the employer provides severance benefits that allow uh, corporate qualified beneficiaries to pay the same monthly premium as actives, and that's $200, and, and just for three months as part of the severance agreement. So in other words, the employer is subsidizing $800 a month for that first three months, and then after the three months, the qualified beneficiary has to pay $1,000. So let's say that the AEI terminates in March 2021 and starts COBRA on April 1st. The tax credit related to the COBRA premium assistance for the first three months of April, May, June is only gonna be $200 because that's the amount required by uh, the, the uh, qualified beneficiary to pay. Uh, but then the COBRA premium assistance goes up to $1,000 in July, August, and September. And then the employer can claim the full $1,000 because that's what's being required of the employee to pay. So you can see the amount shift when it comes to the portion of severance payments that relate to COBRA payments. Um, if instead COBRA didn't start until July 1st, because sometimes in a severance agreement, you'll have an extension of eligibility through the first three months or whatever period of time that is, rather than just saying this is a subsidy of COBRA, we're just not going to start the COBRA period until three months later. In that case, because the COBRA event hasn't occurred yet, those first three months of April, May, and June, the employer would actually get $0 of tax credit uh, because it's not COBRA yet. Of course, once COBRA kicks in and the employee is required to pay the full amount, it would be $1,000 in our example of the tax credit per month for July, August, and September. So really this comes back to looking closely at the severance agreement. We've found right. that all along, look at the terms, see what it says, this guidance is very clear that if there's you know, part of a severance agreement that the employer is agreeing to pay, 
that they can't then turn around and claim a tax credit for that that portion. So that was a right. big, big shift. I would imagine if the severance agreement was giving them some funds that they could use for COBRA payments or something else, obviously, then it wouldn't necessarily count in this in this aspect. So it gets down to if the funds are being paid and, and required to be paid for COBRA versus having uh, the ex-employee um, having some discretion as to how those funds will be used. Exactly. Um, Great point. So let's talk about tax credit itself in the process. Yeah, so first, employers claim the credit by reporting the credit and the number of AEIs receiving the COBRA subsidy on the related lines of Form 941. That's the uh, called the Employer's Quarterly Federal Tax Return. It really comes as a credit against employment taxes. If you want to be more specific, it's FICA tax. If you want to be even more specific, it's Medicare tax. And we mentioned that because we've seen it referenced as Medicare tax in some places, FICA in other places, and employment tax in other places. So those are all kind of the same things. They're just kind of different levels under the umbrella of employment taxes. But if the credit is more than the employment tax liability, then the IRS will provide a refund, uh, presumably through a check or direct deposit, depending on how the employer has paid employment taxes in the past. So that's one question we've seen a lot. Also, the employer can file for an advance payment via IRS Form 7200. Um, so there's some examples in the FAQs on that and aligning the credit with the subsidy payment itself. Okay, you mentioned, I mean, you mentioned that we they had to identify the number of AEI. So that obviously gets to the question of documentation of AEI status um, in order to justify the claim for the credit. Uh, what recommendations do you have on documentation? Yeah, so this has been a little confusing throughout as well, and it plays back to the model notices that are supposed to go out. But to claim the credit, employers have to keep records of either an individual attesting to their eligibility as an AEI, or they need to have the related documentation showing that they were AEIs. The IRS could have made this more clear. <laughs> But basically, if employers have documentation, if they know that this is somebody that was, you know, lost their coverage because of a reduction in hours or because of an involuntary termination, and they have that and, and can show it, that's likely enough. But if the employer wants to, and uh, they choose, choose to do, they can require each AEI to provide certification or an attestation. Those are kind of the same thing basically the employee just signing something saying, yes, they are, and they don't have other coverage available to them or Medicare available to them. Um, they can require that of these individuals and then they, they need to retain those attestations uh, to claim the tax credit. An employer can require uh, that the AEI is eligible due to the involuntary termination or reduction hours and that they don't have disqualifying coverage or they can just assume it based on their own records as the employer. Um, one clarification that was important there, if the employer just assumes based on their records that individuals are AEIs, but it turns out that the individual actually was eligible for other coverage and the employer was kind of unaware of that, the employer can still claim the tax credit. So that was an important clarification, I thought, because if right. you know, I think there was a concern out there if the employer does this, they send out the notices, they provide the payment, 
and then later find out that this individual was ineligible, they would lose the tax credit. Uh, but no risk there as long as the employer doesn't have knowledge of that other coverage eligibility or Medicare eligibility, they can go ahead and assume based on their own records, you know, saying that an individual is involuntarily terminated or reduced hours. And there's no requirement for them to to try to do any due diligence with respect to that. So that's just, uh, again, um, relying on the information that they have readily at hand without additional due diligence. Right. And then last thing, as far as, far as the attestation and certification, that's really part of the process that's included in those model notices. We didn't talk a lot about those model notices today, uh, but really there is part of one of the notices that's supposed to go out that says, um, you know, as an individual receiving this, you need to send the form back saying that you are uh, eligible, that you're not eligible for other coverage or Medicare, and that your original was sort of an involuntary termination or a reduction in hours. So bottom line though, the goal of substantiation is to prove the employer's right to the premium tax credit, not to really serve as an impediment to AEIs receiving the coverage. Terrific. Um, any closing thoughts that you would like to, to provide with all of this? I know you mentioned our, po- our uh, webinar yesterday. Um, you wanna mention any other resources? and. Yeah, webinar was great yesterday. It was about an hour and a half. If you have time, we've also updated our FAQ document on this that's available on the latest insights page at nfp.com. Email your NFP broker if you need a link to that or go to nfp.com and look under latest insights. But it's been a long haul on these subsidies. So I think we're kind of getting to where the deadline for the notices to go out. Hopefully employers are uh, working with vendors Uh, with the carriers and just working through the process. And then hopefully this becomes kind of old hat. And then of course it expires unless Congress decides to extend these past September. Uh, But for now, this should all kind of wrap up in September and hopefully we can move on from there. Terrific. Well, thank you for walking through all of this uh, new information. And and as Chase said, there's more in-depth coverage through the webinar and through some of the written materials that we have provided. But with that, we'd like to say that's a wrap. That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us.